Warning, this episode contains details that may be triggering to some listeners. Details include domestic violence. Listener discretion advised. Hey, Crime Salad listeners, welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. My name is Ashley, and with me always is my wonderful husband and partner in crime, Ricky. And Ricky, can you shout out our patrons this week? Okay, patrons. We have Megan, Michelle, Anna, and Holly. Thank you guys so much. Thank you all so much for your support. Enjoy the ad-free listens, bonus content, and occasionally early access to our episodes. Now, this week, we are discussing the case that involves the murder of Dr. Mary Yoder. This case is full of question marks. And because there's so much to this case, we're breaking it up in two parts. So join us next week for the conclusion to this case. All right, let's jump in. It was July 20th, 2015, and Dr. Mary Yoder started her day as usual by skipping breakfast and heading to her successful upstate New York medical chiropractic office. It was a practice she shared for the last 30 years with her husband, Dr. Bill Yoder, 10 years her senior. At 61 years young, she was a health and fitness guru with the energy of someone much younger. Bill, too, centered his life around mind, body, and wellness. However, at 71 years old, he was winding down with an eye towards retirement. He would still come into the office two days a week for administrative tasks and to see a few patients, although he left most of the patient care to his wife, who showed no signs of slowing down anytime soon. Mary, who was known to never sit down, sometimes worked on three patients at a time. She was universally beloved by her loyal patients, many who insisted they couldn't go more than a few days without her healing hands or chiropractic treatments. The office was open Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. Mary was so dedicated to her patients that several times a week after a long day at work, she would drive out to Amish country to provide treatments to the Amish. She knew that they couldn't get to her on their horses and buggies, and they needed care too. In fact, Mary was more interested in making her patients feel better than collecting payment for her services. Rather than see a patient suffer, she would often barter services or tell them to pay what they could when they could. Mary was also an avid gardener with an elaborate home garden as well as a potter. She even sold some of her handmade pottery at the office along with herbal supplements and healthcare-centered books. So it was so out of character for Mary to radiate anything other than her usual high energy and joyful personality. On that July morning, when she arrived at the office, she was greeted by 22-year-old Caitlin Conley, her adult son, Adam Yoder's on and off again girlfriend. Katie, as she was known, worked as the receptionist and office manager. She usually greeted the patients, checked them in, took them into their room and handled patient billing. Katie would later say that Mary seemed like her usual self that morning. She came in, she made herself a high-nutrient shake with almond milk, and began seeing patients. 
The patients she saw earlier that morning said Mary seemed normal. One patient who saw Mary three times a week stated that, quote, she was just normal Mary, she was fine, end quote. Another who saw her around 2.30 in the afternoon said, quote, Mary was usually a very exuberant person. She just appeared to have her mind focused somewhere else that day, end quote. However, patient Lucy Gold, who saw Mary at the end of the day for her 5.15 appointment, said, quote, Mary seemed different, very disconnected. I felt that she did not feel well. Mary kept leaving the room throughout the appointment and going to the bathroom, end quote. As the afternoon progressed, both Katie and various patients noticed that Mary's demeanor was significantly different. Patients who had seen her for decades could immediately tell she wasn't feeling well. Her behavior and temperament seemed amiss, and occasionally she grimaced in obvious pain. Usually, Mary looked forward to ending her days going home to Bill and together working in her garden, but this day she was looking forward to getting home and getting some rest. As for her husband Bill, it had been a quiet day. He had run a few errands, napped, and was waiting for Mary to come home. According to Bill's own accounts and his phone records, Bill was by himself and home alone that day. Bill and Mary spoke each night at the end of the day before she either headed to treat the Amish or headed home. And that day she called Bill at 6.30 p.m. and didn't sound like herself. She told him that she was heading straight home and wasn't feeling well. Later, Bill would say she sounded strained and exhausted. Usually at the end of a workday, she was upbeat and filled with energy. Mary hardly ever got sick and when she did, she never complained about it. Bill would later say he knew immediately that something was terribly wrong. As she walked in the front door about 6.45 p.m., she went straight to the bathroom where it appeared she had picked up a gastrointestinal virus. According to Bill, she looked like the walking dead. Uncertain how to help her, he paced around for a while, listening to her vomit. He was torn between wanting to help her and wanting to give her privacy. When she was finally able to stop vomiting, she came out of the bathroom looking pale and exhausted. She could barely walk. But every 20 minutes or so, she would spring back up and go to the bathroom in obvious distress and discomfort. Bill thought she either had the stomach flu or food poisoning, but all she had that day to eat was her almond milk protein shake. The back and forth from the couch to the bathroom lasted for hours, and by 9.30 p.m., Mary decided to stay on the couch for the night. She didn't want to keep Bill awake and urged him to go upstairs and go to sleep. She told him she just needed to let this bug work itself out of her system. The next morning, Bill checked on Mary, and she looked much worse. She told him she was up all night in the bathroom with a vomit bucket between her knees. She was dehydrated and experiencing severe abdominal cramps. Bill called their daughter, Liana, who was a medical doctor, for advice, and she told her dad to get her mom to the hospital for fluids. Bill had been through this same situation a few months earlier with their son, Adam. He, too, quickly came down with a vicious gastrointestinal bug that took him weeks to recover from. Liana and her dad took Adam to the hospital for fluids, and after 24 hours, he was ready to come home. He assumed Mary would need the same treatment and would then feel better. Mary was too weak to walk to her car on her own and required Bill to help her walk a short distance to the car. Bill took her to St. Luke's Hospital where she was immediately given fluids through an IV. 
However, she still wasn't feeling better. So after a CAT scan, they decided to admit her for observation. They gave her something to help stop her vomiting and relieve her excruciating pain from the abdominal cramps. A few hours later, Mary was having trouble breathing and asked Bill to go home to get her inhaler. She assumed her breathing issues were allergy related. When he arrived back with the allergy meds, the doctors were given Mary a nebulizer breathing treatment to help open her bronchial tubes. Mary looked gray and she could barely keep her eyes open. This was much different than the experience he had with Adam. Now, what was interesting is based on the test, Mary didn't have the flu or a stomach bug. Both the doctors and Mary urged Bill to go home and rest, and they assured him that Mary would probably be better by the next day, and they would also have answers as to what was causing her symptoms. He kissed Mary goodbye and promised to come back in the morning with her reading glasses and her favorite cough drops to help soothe her throat. Then he called their daughter, Liana, and explained that Mary would be staying overnight and he would update her in the morning. Bill went home, placed his phone on the charger in another room, and went to bed. The next thing he knew, he was awakened to a loud banging noise at 5.30 in the morning of someone knocking on the door. When he went to answer the door, he was faced with two state troopers. Apparently, the hospital had been trying to get a hold of Bill all night, and he wasn't answering his phone. Overnight, Mary's health had taken a sudden and unexpected turn for the worse. The troopers notified him that Mary was in the ICU and he should go to the hospital immediately. Once he arrived, he was told that Mary's heart had stopped, but the doctors and nursing staff were able to resuscitate her. They told him that Mary had walked herself to the bathroom in the middle of the night and fell on the floor. That's when they noticed her health had rapidly declined. They had no idea what was causing the sudden shift in her condition, but it was worsening by the minute. And then Bill was told he needed to gather all of Mary's loved ones to come and say their last goodbyes. His son Adam had been staying at his sister Liana's house for the past week, helping her with birthdays for his niece and nephew. He planned to stay with her sister and her family all summer to help with the children, one of which was special needs and had just undergone surgery. During the past few summers, Adam would usually bring Katie along with him. Katie, if you remember, is the on and off again girlfriend who worked at his parents' chiropractic office. But this time he came alone since he and Katie had recently broken up. And like we said, this was something that they did often during the last four years of their tumultuous relationship. However, this time Adam was sure their breakup was permanent. Usually their breakups devastated him, but this time he was happy things were finally over. As soon as Liana told him about their mother's illness, he drove all night over six hours to be at his mom's bedside. Adam loved both of his parents, but he was closer with his mother and he couldn't believe how quickly things had changed. His parents were planning to come up to Liana's house the next weekend, which Adam was looking forward to. Now he was on his way to possibly see her for the last time. This was shocking and out of nowhere. He had just partially finished his school exams in May, and after suffering a similar illness as his mother, he was finally feeling better. It had taken Adam over a month to finally recover, and in the process, he missed a few of his exams, which really upset him. He had only been there six days when he learned his mother was in the hospital. Liana spoke to the doctors on the phone and was told bluntly that her mother was dying and no one knew why. 
When the rest of Mary's family arrived at the hospital, they were stunned by Mary's condition. She was strapped to the bed, unable to communicate, only able to move her eyes in a pleading manner. Bill and Mary's daughter, Tammy, had also arrived from New York and was shocked to see her mother's condition. Now, later in the book entitled, We Thought We Knew You by M. William Phelps, Mary's husband, Bill, told the author that throughout the day, Mary had died six or seven times. And each time Mary coded and flatlined, they were able to bring her back with a team of nurses and doctors and medical equipment. Each time the doctors managed to resuscitate her from death, they emerged exhausted, telling the family they could go back in and spend whatever time was left with her. Adam was emotionally falling apart, and in a moment of weakness, he texted Katie. He told her what was happening and said, quote, I'm sorry to put this pressure on you. You don't owe me anything, but I need you, end quote. Katie was thrilled to hear from Adam, but saddened for him by the circumstances. Over the next several hours, the doctors would bring Mary back from the brink of death over and over again, and one time they told the family that she was breathing, but likely brain dead. Then, miraculously, Mary would be responsive again, trying to communicate with her eyes as her family told her to hang on and how much they loved and needed her. But by 2.23 p.m., surrounded by her family, Mary went into cardiac arrest for the final time. As much as they all wanted Mary to live, they couldn't keep watching her die before their eyes. Mary died a horrific death, filled with excruciating pain, and the doctors still had no answers. Bill couldn't believe that just a few days earlier, he and Mary were planning a cruise and a trip to Europe, and now he was planning a funeral. It seemed incomprehensible. Later, this would be disputed, but according to Bill, the doctors asked that they consent to an autopsy. However, since Mary's death was undiagnosed and mimicked the symptoms of poisoning, the autopsy wasn't really a choice at all. It was mandatory. In the days following Mary's death, the family relied heavily on Katie, and not just because she was the office receptionist, but also because she was a close family friend. Despite her on and off again relationship status with Adam, Katie was an invaluable resource, and despite her own grieving, she rallied around the family and helped them plan a celebration of life for Mary, which was attended by over 200 people. And as a bonus, Katie once again grew closer to Adam, which led to their eventual reconciliation. Although Liana couldn't allow herself to grieve for her mother until she had answers as to what exactly caused her death. In the hospital, she knew that her mother had been diagnosed with gastrointestinal symptoms, but that certainly wasn't the cause for Mary's death. The autopsy was completed on July 23, 2015. However, the medical examiner, Dr. Kenneth Clark, was unable to determine cause and manner of death from his examination. Originally, the family believed that Mary had died due to an infection in her bowel duct that traveled to her gallbladder. However, that was ruled out during the autopsy. What he did find was evidence of cell death, which usually means exposure to toxins. Something entered her body that caused her organs to shut down. As is their regular custom and practice, they sent out blood samples, tissue samples, and stomach contents to be tested for drugs or toxins to see if they could pinpoint what led Mary's organs to shut down. Dr. Clark asked Liana if something in Mary's daily life could have exposed her to toxins. And as a result, Bill and Adam both went through Mary's things, looking for the cause of her death. 
Bill went through her gardening supplies, and Adam demanded that Katie use her key to let him into her mother's medical practice. Once inside, Adam tore the office apart and went through everything in what she would later describe to police as a rage-filled manner. His behavior scared Katie, and she tried to avoid making him angrier. Adam took samples of everything he could find, including his mother's shake mix, vitamins, and even the almond milk she kept in the refrigerator and dropped it off at the medical examiner's office to be tested. The entire Yoder family appeared to want answers as to what killed their wife and mother. Dr. Clark consulted with experts, and one possible toxin that kept coming up was called cultrazine. In September of 2015, a forensics expert at MS Labs in Pennsylvania conducted the requested test on Mary Yoder's blood, urine, and gastric content samples. They all came back negative for arsenic or cyanide. However, one of her blood samples and one of her gastric content samples both came back positive for cultrazine. Cultrazine, when properly used, is an anti-inflammatory medicine routinely prescribed for the treatment of gout and inflammatory arthritis. However, it can cause cultrazine toxicity, where all of the liquids leave your body, resulting in a very painful and drawn-out death. In this case, Mary brutally suffered over the course of two days, enduring extreme pain, discomfort, and multiple heart attacks. So now it was a question, how and where did this toxin come from? Since gout is often treated by a chiropractor, this made sense. However, they needed to determine if Mary ingested the toxin accidentally or intentionally. And if she was poisoned by someone, it would have to be someone with close access and proximity to Mary, and someone who has access to this drug. As a matter of routine, the medical examiner had to inform law enforcement of the poisoning so they could conduct an investigation and determine how Mary came into contact with the deadly toxin. The medical examiner's office notified the family of Mary's cause of death. They were shocked to learn it was from a deadly toxin. This new revelation caused the Yoder family to go back into investigation mode. Bill asked Katie if anyone had brought in food or drinks to the office on the day that Mary got sick. Katie said there wasn't anything brought in by a patient. Once Mary's sisters found out, they called the Oneida County Police Department and formally asked for an investigation into Mary's death. But first, they had to determine if a crime had been committed before they could investigate anyone. And of course, the husband is always the first person to be investigated. When asked, Mary's sister Janine told officers that she had no reason to suspect Bill in Mary's death. Although she did say if she found out Bill was having an affair, she would change her mind. She also offered that if Bill were involved, they would never catch him because he was too brilliant and too smart for law enforcement. This led law enforcement to begin their very thorough investigation into Bill Yoder. One of the first things they discovered was just a few weeks after Mary's death, he began dating her sister-in-law, Kathleen Leon. When they interviewed Bill for the first time, they had him take them through his entire relationship with Mary. They discovered that Bill, who was originally from Phoenix, Arizona, was in grad school at the University of Buffalo pursuing a doctorate in philosophy with an eye towards teaching when he first met Mary. However, those plans all changed when Mary rented a room in the same rental house where he was also living. 
She had just transferred from community college and was pursuing her bachelor's degree. There was a 10-year age gap between them, but they were drawn to each other immediately. Eventually, he obtained two PhDs and published several books on philosophy. He taught at the university level for a while, and he and Mary eventually got married, started a family, and both attended chiropractic school together. In their 38 years of marriage, they began each day with a kiss and described by family and friends as inseparable. Bill said Mary had a constant glow about her and was the healthiest person he knew. He described her as positive, pleasant, and graceful. Not much got to Mary. Her goal that summer of 2015 was to go home each day and work in her garden, which was her happy place. Bill and Mary had three children together, Leona Hedge, who was a medical doctor at the time, and a stay-at-home mom to her four children, their son Adam, who was a college student and had previously worked as their office manager before quitting and going back to finish school, and their daughter Tammy, who was living in New York City and was estranged from her father at the time of Mary's death. Law enforcement learned that it was Adam who had urged his parents to hire Katie as their office manager, despite their constant on-and-off-again status. Katie was a pretty brunette with a girl-next-door personality. She was shy, smart, and gave off a professional but sophisticated aura. By the end of 2014, she had taken over as the full-time office manager, in addition to attending college herself. She lived with her family on several acres of land where they raised horses. The Yoders had come to love Katie, even though it seemed her relationship with Adam could be bumpy and dramatic at times. The Yoders had a hands-off approach when it came to Adam's personal life, and they refused to mitigate or get involved in the couple's relationship drama. While the relationship started out strong in 2011, by the summer of 2015, they were no longer speaking to each other. Law enforcement learned that Mary was the glue that held the entire family together. While Bill could be a hard, rigid, and by some accounts took a tough love approach with his children, Mary was that soft and warm one. She was her children's soft place to land. Bill was described by Mary's sister to police as emotionally demanding of Mary's time and attention. Since Katie was one of the last people to see Mary before she became ill, police needed to interview her as well. But more importantly, they were interested in what she knew about the family dynamics, including her relationship with Adam. Adam first met Katie in 2011 at a high school graduation party. He was immediately smitten with her and reached out on Facebook asking her out. However, it was many weeks later before she responded because she was on a trip to Germany at the time. Once she came back, they were immediately taken with each other and spent all of their time together. While Adam kept the details of his relationship private from his family, he wasn't shy about expressing his emotions. He poured out his heart to Katie, promising to marry her someday. In text messages, he told her that she had changed him for the better and he had completely fallen in love with her. However, their relationship could be intensely passive-aggressive, and while Katie loved the overt declarations of love, she would often meet them with ambivalence, indifference, and doubts about their future. This was something that would devastate Adam. Katie was very analytical, and there were many things she didn't like about Adam. 
She told him she could only love him back and see a future with him if he drastically changed his life. One of the things she disliked about Adam was his partying, Adderall usage, and heavy drinking. Their relationship worked best when Adam was following all of Katie's rules, which he tried very hard to follow but regularly fell short of her expectations. A lot of Adam's problems were financially based, which he couldn't really address until he finally graduated from college. Another one of Adam's problems was his housing instability and his father wouldn't allow him to move back home. That's when Katie began loaning Adam money as an investment in their future. From a view of their text messages, it appeared that Adam tried very hard to avoid the quote, loans from Katie, but eventually, seeing a future with her, he gave in to a repeated offers that bordered on insistence, including loaning him the cash to put down on a Jeep. They had a clear agreement that Adam would begin paying Katie back as soon as he graduated from college and got a full-time job. By the time of their last breakup, he owed Katie almost $15,000. However, he knew their relationship was volatile each time he reluctantly accepted her offers of financial support. He justified taking the loans by telling himself that Katie was good for him and only wanted what was best for their future together. Katie told investigators that Adam had a complicated relationship with his dad, which she believed was why he was prone to depression and anxiety. It's clear from the family dynamics that Bill Yoder was not an enabler. In his eyes, Adam was an adult, and as an adult, had to make his own decisions, good or bad. This sometimes put Mary in an awkward position between her husband and her son, but Mary believed in Adam. He was young and figuring things out and was taking an alternative path to get there. But he was getting there. Mary knew Adam wanted to get there for himself, but most importantly, he wanted to get there for Katie. In that regard, they thought that Katie was a positive influence on Adam. Katie had high standards for herself, and often her demands on Adam bordered on controlling. She told Adam she wanted a man who knew where his life was headed and how he was going to get there. Adam admired the fact that Katie seemed grounded, goal-oriented, and was close with her family. Despite his feelings for Katie, he could go from sweet and loving one moment and filled with anger, self-loathing, and hatred for her the next. He would often accuse Katie of pushing his buttons because she was addicted to the drama. Adam never shared his relationship ups and downs about Katie with his family. As far as the Yoders knew, Katie was task-oriented and good at her job. She handled the accounting whether a patient paid with vegetables, pies, insurance reimbursements, or cash. Bill would later say that all he knew was the books were always balanced and Katie never made mistakes. While they didn't know the details of Adam and Katie's relationship status, they were aware the two had broken up for good in 2014 when Adam asked his parents to stop inviting Katie to family events or functions, especially not to monthly board game nights or to his sister Liana's home in Long Island. Law enforcement learned that Adam kept a notebook of poetry and love letters to Katie where he tried to work out why the relationship was so toxic. One recurring theme in his notebook was that he and Katie belonged together. He came to this conclusion because they always found their way back to each other. From a review of their letters, it appeared that Katie used breakups as a way of controlling Adam, causing him to work hard to get her back with written confessions of true love and grand gestures. However, during one breakup, Katie did something that Adam found unforgivable. She slept with one of his friends, and not just a friend, but a best friend and workout partner. 
Katie tried to deny it and later to downplay it as something she never meant to happen. She told Adam, if anything, she was the victim and had been coerced, seduced, and used by his friend. Adam told her that this time, their relationship was finally over for good. Despite their breakup, they followed their regular pattern and still spoke regularly. It appeared that Katie used Adam's outstanding debt to her as an excuse to still see each other. When Adam would become unresponsive or unwilling to see her, she began demanding payment in full for his outstanding loan. Even though their agreement had always been, he would begin paying it back after he graduated from college. Katie told Adam he owed her $8,000 over what he originally borrowed due to compound interest for a total of $23,000, something the two of them never agreed to. Adam was shocked and angry and told Katie it was impossible for him to come up with that money in less than 30 days. Katie even went to Mary and tried to involve her in Adam's outstanding debt, but Mary shrugged Katie off and said she wouldn't get involved in the relationship. They were adults and it needed to be kept out of the office. This secretly enraged Katie, not because she wanted or needed the money back, but because she wanted to be seen as a victim by Mary. She wanted Mary to punish Adam and she didn't get anywhere near the reaction or sympathy she was expecting. Now, over the next few months, Katie did everything she could to get back together with Adam. She had lost control and she didn't like the feeling of no longer having Adam's heart to toy with. But Adam was softening. He did say that he could still be friends and they could still speak, but he had begun dating someone else and he no longer wanted the drama that surrounded Katie. That's when Katie made one last ditch effort to get him back. Adam was in the process of packing up and moving in with his cousin, Dave King. He was being given the chance to live with Dave and his girlfriend rent-free as long as he stayed in school and graduated. All of Adam's family wanted him to succeed. That's when Katie told him that she wanted them to get back together, and she had been saving up money for a long time and was going to buy a house for them to live together. This time, Adam wasn't taking the emotional strings that Katie regularly dangled. He had checked out of the relationship, and nothing she said, did, or promised was going to change things. Now, seven months prior to his mother's death, Adam was spending the night at his new girlfriend's home. After midnight, he noticed a missed call from Katie. He called her back a few times, but he didn't get an answer. And the next day, he talked to a devastated Katie. She had just gotten back from the hospital after suffering an ectopic pregnancy. Because the fetus wasn't viable, Katie had to make the decision alone to go forward with a medically induced miscarriage. She was devastated. She told Adam that the hospital told her she was lucky to be alive and came very close to death. She was doing her best to make Adam feel guilty for not being available to her in her darkest hour. Then she told him it was okay because, quote, she was used to doing things alone now. Then she graphically told him what she had been through the night before. She told him that the hospital injected their baby as if it were a tumor until it died. She said she came very close to bleeding out and dying. She told him the entire thing lasted over an hour from the time she arrived at the hospital and by the time she was back at home. Now, Adam wasn't medically knowledgeable enough to know that either her timeline was off or Katie was blatantly lying. As soon as Adam heard about Katie's alleged near-death experience, he rushed straight to Katie's house and they mourned together. But this, too, eventually ended in a fight because Adam felt terrible for not being there for Katie. 
When he expressed those sentiments, Katie became enraged and said if the pregnancy was viable, she would have had to have the abortion anyway because Adam had made it clear he wasn't in a place in his life to have children. Adam found this insulting and said that he would have stepped up and been responsible regardless of timing. But Katie insisted that since Adam had already moved on, he would have abandoned her and left her to raise a hypothetical baby all on her own just to spite her and ruin her life. That next day, Adam stayed over and the two of them had sex together. That's when Adam decided he should end things with his new girlfriend and go back to Katie. It was the least he could do after what she had been through. After they got back together, things were still volatile. For days, they sent each other combative and insulting text, which ended once again in Adam telling her he hated her and wanted nothing more to do with her. The only thing tying them together now was Adam's debt to Katie for student loans, credit card bills, and his car. And they occasionally met for tea to discuss the loan. Katie liked to demand that they meet regularly for accounting purposes. It was clear from their text messages that Katie still wasn't ready for the relationship to end, at least not on Adam's terms. But once Mary Yoder suddenly died, Adam and Katie were once again back together. In Adam's time of need, Katie was there to emotionally support Adam and the entire Yoder family, as she always had been in the past. Despite all these intertwined family dynamics, police were still no closer to determining if Mary had been murdered or if she had accidentally exposed herself to the toxin in the course of her everyday life. But that uncertainty and speculation all ended when police received an anonymous letter. The letter writer knew exactly what had happened to Mary Yoder. They knew she was murdered and they knew exactly who had murdered her. The anonymous letter writer named Adam Yoder as Mary's murderer. But could it really be Adam who murdered his own mother? That's where we are going to end our episode for today. You can hear the conclusion to the case next week. Thank you all so much for listening. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect.